Hello friends, welcome to the software world, I'm John Dost. Here I'm on a mission to make connections between the software industry and our individual and unique lives. We all have a common goal of solving problems with software. Whatever happens on our journeys will not stay mysterious anymore. Hello everyone, welcome back to the software world with John Dost. And today I'm very excited because I have a great guest that I still cannot believe David Marquez here. Well, let me tell you the story of David Marquez if you don't know him. In 1981, David graduated top of his class from the US Naval Academy, an institute renowned for developing leaders to serve the nation. Thereafter, he joined the submarine force. Along his journey, one thing bothered him. The traditional leader-follower model. Used by the Navy and most companies around the world, the goal of leader-follower is to influence people to comply, not to think. David experienced firsthand how this practice makes people feel marginalized. He knew in his gut that there had to be a better way. He had soon discovered that, to prove his theory, he had had to break some rules. As engineer officer aboard the USS Will Rogers, a nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine, David tried empowering his team. He provided broad guidance, giving the team intent rather than orders. It was a disaster. His team made poor decisions that led to errors. He had to stop and revert to the traditional leader-follower method. After a while, ultimately, David was selected to captain the USS Olympia, a nuclear-powered attack submarine. He studied for over a year to take command, understanding on a deep level every detail of how that submarine operated. Unexpectedly, David was diverted to take command of the USS Santa Fe when its captain quit. Santa Fe was the worst performing submarine in the fleet, and a different type of submarine that he knew little about. In a short time in Santa Fe, David realized that the leader-follower environment meant his crew would do anything he said, even if it was wrong. That could be catastrophic. He decided to try intent-based leadership again. Captain Marquet began treating his crew as leaders, not followers, and giving control, not taking control. It wasn't long before operations took a dramatic turn. Santa Fe went from worst to first, achieving the highest retention and operation standings in the Navy. Captain Marquet retired from the Navy in 2009 and authored the Turn the Ship Around, the book that we are going to talk about today. The book is a true story of turning followers into leaders. Fortune magazine called the book the best how-to manual anywhere for managers on delegating, training and driving flawless execution. Captain Marquez's intent-based leadership model is turning around all the types of organizations, from big manufacturers to startups and support teams to government. And today we are going to talk about this book because I read the book, I was pretty amazed, and I have many questions to ask to David. So, without further ado, welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, uh, Software World, John Dost. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your taking the time and being here to answer a couple of questions that I had after reading your great book, The Turn the Ship Around. <laughs> that was an amazing book. Thank you. Yeah, so the, in the book, you, you mentioned about leadership style. It's called intent-based leadership. Could you tell us briefly what is intent-based leadership and what are the qualities that leaders will earn when they go to the, this style and use this style? Yeah, I, I think of it as a language and it's a language that we speak at work because what happened to me as a leader was I had to learn a new language. And too many times I think we approach leadership as some philosophical activity. Mm -hmm. 
Like, oh, you should empower your team. You should create motivated people. You should take care of your people. Like, oh, obviously. And we don't really talk about how you actually do that. So for us, the fundamental shift was from permission to intent. It was motivated because I was the captain of a submarine, which at the very last minute I was transferred to, which was not a submarine, which I had been trained to take over. It was a submarine I was never been on, kind of submarine I'd never been on. So I was unfamiliar with all the equipment. And the old model of me knowing all the answers and telling people what to do didn't work. So the idea is the team says, here's what I intend to do. Uh And then the leader can ask questions. The leader can say no. Uh But it's initiated with the members of the team. Now, when I say team, it's not a group effort. It's the individual owners. So if I'm, say, the senior vice president for product, Uh it's not like five people come to me and they say this. It's like thus the product owner for a particular product comes to me and says, hey, in the next sprint cycle, this is what we intend to do. Or we intend to launch the product on this date or we tend to delay the launch, whatever it happens to be. And then they back that up with the Mm -hmm. reasons why they want to do that. Okay. Interesting. Because like when I hear or like when I read the book the first time and now I hear you, I had different, a little bit different understanding. So for example, vice president of product or any kind of leader that can come to the, I don't know, to executive, for example, and says we intend to do this in this sprint or in this cycle that we are having. But in my head, I thought about the individual contributors like software engineers, for example, comes up and says, yeah, I intend to do that. And not just in the mid-level, but literally on the bottom level of organization chart, if you think through. Yeah, it it can cascade all the way down. But but what I was saying, the reason I was saying that was because people will ask me, oh, but I don't really have time for this consensus decision-making. It's not consensus decision-making. I never said that. Mm-hmm. What, what they what they say so when i say the team tells the leader what they intend to do it's the head of the team tells the leader what they tend to do and if it cascades down to the individual contributors great hey this today so at our daily stand-up mm-hmm. we say okay we we talk about what do you intend to do today and if there's two pieces you can start with hey what do you intend intend to do both the magic comes from what decisions are you making hmm We always think about our work in terms of what decisions are we making and what actions are we taking. Okay. Now it's a little bit more clear, like the intentions and decisions. Yeah, I've seen a lot the everybody is trying to either create a consensus or hate consensus. I've worked in both styles, but I think this intent-based relation, like someone's coming up and I intend to do this, is also like having the own ownership and also bringing the accountability with it. If you are intending to do that, which that means for you that you are responsible for the results and that's your intention. And if everything is good, just good and do it. What are you intending to do? Yeah, the key is it's initiated. Hmm. lower down. So you can't ever say, oh, well, I knew it was screwed up, but someone told me to do it. Mm-hmm. So the, the difference is uh, one of our partners is a company called Crisp and they operate out of mm-hmm. Stockholm and they consult with companies in the software space. They don't talk about consensus because when we say consensus and the other phrase is everyone gets a voice. What happens is everyone thinks they can stop anything. So I need to make every pe- every person vote yes before I can move forward. 
this is designed to prevent things from happening. So we say it's consent. So I say, this is what I intend to do. Mm-hmm. And people can, they can abstain, they can not vote, they can not respond. But as long as no one's saying no, then I'm moving forward. So I don't have to run around and convince everyone it's the right thing to do. I just need to make sure no one sees any showstoppers. Okay, so this is, uh, I think it's a great point. Like in consent, yes, everyone's page saying yes or getting an answer, yes, let's go with it. But in this style, if there is no objection or anything, if there is no red flag raising up, saying that we should stop doing this, then you just got to go and do it, whatever you want to do. Yeah, we call it consent. So it's not yeah, it's exactly. not consensus, it's consent. And it's not everyone gets a voice, but everyone should be heard. Uh-huh. If you're the leader, you need to listen to everybody. And then you make a decision. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's number one. But and number two is for most of these decisions, we push the decision down one level. For almost every decision on the submarine, it went down one level. So for decisions the captain used to make, they went, would be made by the engineer, or the weapons officer, or one mm-hmm. of the department heads. And then for the decisions those guys would make, they would now be made by junior officers. And, and so we were just like, every decision got made one step lower, one step closer to where the information is. We say, push the authority to the information, not information to authority. So we, in general, our system was set up so that people on the periphery of the organization would submit all these reports and stoplight charts to the per- people with authority to make decisions because they, didn't, they were removed. They didn't know how, many, how complex the software was. They didn't know how hard the job was. They, didn't, they weren't looking into the face of the customer. And so they didn't have all the context. And they say, well, then we spent all this time explaining the context so that someone who, who was removed from the situation could make a decision. That's a bad approach, in my opinion, because it slows things down, decouples people from ownership, and it creates distortion. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is let the people who are closest to the information have the authority to make the decision that they need. So like an easy example is a software engineer is in the code. They know exactly how complicated it is. They know how the testing's going. They know how many sort of little mm-hmm. workarounds they put into it. And so they know what the risk is of having an intrusion or something like that. To be able to explain all that to some executive far away is just takes a long, long time and they would never have the understanding. Mm-hmm. Let the person flying the airplane, let the person conducting the operation, let the person selling the product, let the salesman make the decision. Now, it requires their motivations to be aligned with the organization, not for their own personal self, which is why we talk. It's easy to talk about, hey, intent-based leadership, but what you'll find is you'll spend a lot more time talking about what are you trying to achieve as an organization. Yeah, I I love this, like the, the quote, actually, like this is one of my favorite quotes that I wrote down is like saying, don't move information to authority, move in authority to the information. But this also uh, like in my head, it's one thing is unclear about it's uh, the part that leaders can have a huge impact on changing the direction, like from information between information and authority, but how non-leaders like like software engineers, for example, can nudge their leaders on this point to make these change, make this fundamental shift. This is where I struggled the most, actually, when I was reading the book. I am a software engineer and I always thought, okay, this is being a leader. I mean, I don't need to hold the title of being manager or something. I'm not talking about that one. But how can I nudge my manager, for example, 
the person who has the authority, let's say, to change their style in that direction. Okay, so I think what you're saying is you're working for a person who makes decisions, doesn't really listen to the team very well. Sometimes you agree with the decision. Sometimes you don't think it's a very good decision and then they don't listen too well. So first is I would be transparent and I would invite feedback. Here's the key. You can only control your own self. You only control your own act, words and, and language. So I would say you got to make it safe for them to hear your idea. If you go and say, hey, I don't think it's a good idea, they're going to feel threatened and it's going to feel unsafe. So we have to give them a choice. We always start with description. Uh-huh. Hey, would you like to see what we see? Would you like to know what we know on the team? Here's how we see it. Just describe what you're seeing. We have so many lines of code. The last time we did an update, it took a lot. You it didn't compile properly the first 10 mm-hmm. times. We had a lot mm-hmm. of little glitches. It's It just feels like it's getting really, really complicated. And we need to push towards simplifying some of the code. Mm-hmm. And then say, okay, so so what do you want us to do? And you and then you do that a few times. And then you say, okay, so here's what we see. Here's what we think. And then hmm. here's what we would do if we were you. This is what I recommend. And you can sort of bootstrap yourself to having greater voice. It's hard to do. And I'm not sure there's any guarantees of success. But I do know that if you challenge the person's authority, it's almost assuredly not going to be a success. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good strategy, at least to give it a try, because I do think that the nudge from, like, for example, the software engineer here is in a good direction. And also, like, I want to ask you one close relate to what we are talking about. Most probably you talk with a lot of leaders across different industries. And with all these talks, what did you see that works well, especially, I mean, if especially in software, about shifting the, this, like the uh, manager's mindset or position, holding a position of privilege to the accountability, responsibility, and doing the work. The phrase we use is we act our way to new thinking. So what doesn't work is trying to convince people, oh, you need to be more like this, or you need to be more of a servant leader, you need to be more inclusive, you need to be more mm-hmm. whatever. That's not going to work. I've never seen that work. What works is we say, hey, you know what? Our protocol is that when we run meetings, what we're going to do is we're going to vote first and then discuss it. So the typical way a meeting is run, let's say the team's got to make a decision or let's say the product owner has to make a decision to launch the product. It's scheduled for the launch in one week. We got to decide. Mm-hmm. 99% of all teams will get together and then someone will say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're in good shape. We've done all this testing. And then someone might say, well, yeah, but I'm not so sure about this, blah, blah, blah. And they talk about it. And then someone may say, well, let's vote, like show your hands up or down. This is a terrible way to run the meeting because it just makes it really hard for people to express different opinions. And we say, oh, but we want to be really inclusive of diverse thinking, but mm-hmm. you're running the meeting in a way that's exactly the opposite. So what you want to do is say, before we discuss and contaminate anyone with group thing, everyone write down on a card or show your hands. We do hands. We do cards. One, zero to five. We call it fist to five. How ready is this for release? And everyone shows their hand. And then mm-hmm. now you're looking for the people who are real, the fives and the zero. And if mm-hmm. there's, 
a whole bunch of fives and not too many zeros. You want to hear the zeros first. You got to control the flow of the meeting. That's what leaders do. They don't control the content. They say, okay, where are the outlying opinions? Okay, John Dos, you have an out- I can see that you have an outlying opinion. You feel strongly it's not ready. I need to hear from you. So let's you get to talk first, not the majority or the loudest person. We don't need to hear from them. And that's what the leader needs to do. He needs to control the flow of information because humans are susceptible to those first things that they hear. And if they first four things they hear, oh, yeah, it's good. We're ready to go. Blah, blah, blah. 737 Max. It's a game changer. Blah, blah. Then the people who think differently will not speak up. That's a good perspective, I think, because like, especially I've seen many times that people more focus on the content and like creating agendas. We create a lot of agendas for meetings and we try to stick to them and we often overlook those situations. Like if someone is not very confident, they don't get these opportunities to talk out loud. And this strategy, in my opinion, helps so in that direction to give the person who needs a voice, a voice, basically. Yeah, and I wouldn't label them as they don't, I mean, it doesn't need to be someone with not a lot of confidence. It's a human, natural human thing. If you think that you're the only person who Mm -hmm. sees it some way, it's less likely, I don't care how much confidence you have, the probability that you're going to speak up, these are all probabilities. I mean, they sh- no one should be thinking it's a, like a light switch. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just, we make it a little bit easier for people to speak up or we make it a little bit harder for people to speak up. That's basically, and you want to make it a little bit easier for the, for the things that you want people to do and a little bit harder for the things you don't want people to do. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I want to like a little bit switch to the part and talk about the, we touched a little bit at taking care of people. And we talked in this podcast with uh, Susan Bond before about protective leadership. And you also mentioned in your book by saying that taking care of people in the organization doesn't mean keeping them safe from the results of their behavior and work. It means giving them tools, education, and advantage to achieve. Their personal and professional goals in the best way can be achieved in this direction. Can you elaborate like on that a little bit? Because I'm curious to hear your thoughts more. And also, what are the most common mistakes leaders make that in the end creates extra work and stress for these leaders? And then they fall into the old habits. Because in your book, I remember that you tried to implement this in a team that was not ready. And then you fall into making a decision by yourself as well. Yeah, well, so protecting your team is a role for the leader. But what happens is people get confused and someone makes a mistake and they say, oh, I'm going to protect you from the consequences of that mistake. Mm -hmm. That is not the way to do it, because now what you're doing is you're decoupling the consequences from people's behavior. So now what you do is get more irresponsible behavior. What you do is you want to protect them from things like if your boss is having a bad day, yells at you. You protect them from that. You don't even talk about it to the team. You don't get upset. You don't take it on the team. You protect them from that. You also can protect them from undue stress and a feeling of time pressure. You say things like, hey, guys, let's, we're going to take a time out for the next hour. I just want to review where we are and talk about how it's going. Don't worry about the deadline and protect them from those kind of stress. Mm-hmm. But so, for example, we had a situation over here where a college coach 
was the junior coach was molesting the boys in the locker room and the senior coach knew about it, but was, quote, protecting him from these consequences. And it was horrible. And that's not what we're talking about. That, 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 and then this person, the senior coach, was famous for, quote, taking care of his people. Mm-hmm. But this is dysfunctional. This is not love. This is not any kind of responsible adult way to interact. So people get confused. They'll just blurt out, oh, I can tweet out, hey, take care of your people. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. You want to protect them from external threats, not from their own behavior. We need to identify, when, if there's bad behavior on the team, someone shows up, is consistently late for meetings. You don't, quote, protect them from that. You challenge, you ask them, hey, what's going on? Is there a reason why you can't show up on time? It feels disrespectful for me and the rest of the team. So that that's where people get this wrong in my mind. Hmm. This reminds me like the type of protective leadership reminds me the leadership that you experienced and when you took over the, the submarine, when you changed the submarine captain role to the, I think it was called Santa Fe. And at that time, your Commodore, what you mentioned in the book is that your Commodore told you, quote, we aren't going to walk down and tell you what you need, but whatever you think you need, we will support. And I think this, with this saying with this, your Commodore made, they protected you from the other things around. They won't come to you and they They didn't come to you, most probably, I don't know, but they didn't come to you and told you that you should do that or do this. These are the consequences or I don't know what's going on there. But uh, the the case is that you experienced this as an employee uh, while you were a captain, of course, but also you transferred this into the your team in the submarine. Yeah. And yeah, the, the word yeah. we use, incubate, I, I, I call it incubate. He incubated us, which means... That's what you do kind of when you got the eggs and they haven't hatched yet and they're very fragile and you, mm-hmm. you're kind of protecting them. And then they hatch and they go out in the, in the world. That's incubation. And then I, and I think that was very important because it allowed us to work through some things before we got too much scrutiny. Because if you get too much scrutiny, you tend to mm-hmm. operate more in a fear-based mode. So that was very, very helpful. He incubated us. Yeah, I think that was like one of the critical points that I want to touch also is that this incubation helped you through to implement this intent-based leadership. This is how I see it. And when I think more about about your experience before being an engineering officer in your previous submarine, and you tried the similar structure and... but. You were not successful, and at there, your your this failure of you shaped you in a different way. And when you got the opportunity or this level of protection incubation from your commodore at that time, this helped you through to achieving intent-based leadership. And now I'm curious about your thoughts very shortly about how like the mid-level leaders, for example, in software companies can get this protection to implement this intent-based leadership in their teams? Yeah, I'm not sure. We have, so one of our stories is there's an executive working at a drug company and he was offered to take over the diabetes division, which was not doing very well Uh at this particular drug company. 
And this person had very strong reputation. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to negotiate and he said, look, I, I'm gonna, I'll do it. I'll, but I, I don't want any, I'm not going to report any metrics for six months. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do weekly sales reports or anything like that for six months. We'll do them, but I'm not going to show them to you mm-hmm. because I don't want to be, I don't want to have to react to this moment by moment thing because we're going to retool the team. Now, I, my experience was things happened very quickly within like a week. Mm-hmm. We, people were, morale was up. People were signing up to stay in the Navy, whereas before they were leaving, but the performance on very, in, on examinations was up. Mm-hmm. So very quickly things started getting better, but it will feel like there's this pause because what happens is team comes to you and says, Hey, here's the situation. What should we do? And in your head, you think, A, it's my job to tell them what to do. And B, you know mm-hmm. what the answer is. You think you know what the answer is. So you say, okay, do the following, blah, blah, blah. Add the feature, don't add the feature, let's say, and then move on. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're making progress. And it's, and it's uh, over-biased towards progress. But the decision, we didn't really spend much time on the decision. We, in fact, just the leader was involved in the decision. To when you say, okay, well, look, why don't you guys go away and come back tomorrow or come back in half an hour and tell me what you would do here. Mm-hmm. It feels like that half an hour is wasted time or that whole day is wasted time because if you just told them what to do, you'd be, they'd be doing it already. Mm-hmm. But you say, hey, come back in half an hour, tell me what you would do. That is critical time though, because now that's like exercising in the gym for decision-making because the team now is thinking about, okay, what do we do? What do we have to weigh? What are the criteria? What's really important? What's not important? What does the client care about? What does the company care about? How much capacity? So they're making all these calculations Mm -hmm. that you need to do to make a good decision. So when they come back to you, yet they quote, wasted half an hour because we weren't doing anything. But Mm -hmm. once we get started, we spend the next week, what we're doing is much more likely to be helping us in the right direction than something that we got to go, uh, then we lost, now we lost a whole week. Mm-hmm. And I would never like, don't say go away and think about it for two weeks. That's too long. But a lot of these times I, for me, it was literally, sometimes it was 30 seconds. I would just say, don't say anything for 30 seconds. Just think about it. Mm-hmm. And you think about uh, that's, oh, that's a super short period of time. But when you stand there for 30 seconds, just looking at another person, usually I go right, say, Hey, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And I'll come back. When I come back, tell me what you would do if you had my job. So, so you're doing two things there. You're giving them a pause to think about it. Mm-hmm. And then you're taking them and you're changing their perspective. So instead of thinking about, okay, I'm the engineer, what, what I need to do for engineering, you're saying, oh, now I'm the captain. Now I'm the CEO. Mm-hmm. Now I'm the CTO. From that, okay, what should, if I were the CTO, what would I do? Sometimes we say also your future self. If you were six months from now, what do you think your six month, your future self would want today's self to do? Another thing is to say, imagine you just got replaced by somebody who knows everything you know. What would that person do? Mm-hmm. So in other words, you, you're getting out of your own, you're stuck in your own head too much. We want to get out of our own heads. Yeah, that these are like, I think, all helpful. And I know, like, I want to listen yeah. to you more and more. And But uh, I know that you have an event coming up where um, I'm, I'm thinking to come to Prague for that. Yeah, I'm coming. To- Could you please 
Talk, tell us a bit about the event. I mean, what, what it will be about and when. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm super excited. I'm coming to Prague. It's on September 22nd. Mm -hmm. It's the Project Agile and Leadership event in Prague. And this is one of the first in-person conferences that I'm going to. And, and it was it was about six months ago. They invited me and they said, well, we could do it virtual. And I said, you know what? I said, is the conference virtual? I said, no, we're going to try and do it. So look, yeah, and then I'm going to be there. <laughs> and so I love Prague. It's a beautiful city, of course. And I've got my vaccination and uh, I'm ready to travel. Yeah. So I'm coming to Prague, September 22nd, the Project Agile and Leadership Conference. Check it out. We're going to have some fun and we're going to talk more about like these things that we should be saying as opposed to what we've been programmed to say. But I will try to be there. I mean, it's close to me. That'd be great. But I will try to be there. Maybe we can meet face to face. Yeah, there yeah, as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Come say hi. Well, thanks a lot, David. It was a pleasure to me and thanks a lot for taking the time to join me in this podcast. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot. And uh, thanks to all the listeners. Take care. Thanks a lot. Good luck. If you liked this episode, please follow the show and share the episode with one of your friends, colleagues, or family members who might find it interesting. Until next time, take care.